At this time in our service, we give our attention to God's word. We believe that the Bible is God's word to us. He speaks to us through his word and tells us who he is and who we are and how we are to live in response to him. Nate will come and read the scriptures for us, and then I'll preach from it. This morning, we'll be reading from Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. It'll be found on page 2 of the Bibles in front of you. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. In case you were wondering, both Nate and I are wearing the same shirt. <laughs> and, and in case you're wondering, this is the second Sunday that that's happened. <laughs> Let's pray together. Our Lord, we give you thanks for this time together, and we thank you for your holy word. Today, I ask that you would fill your people with great joy. Pray that you would fill our hearts with great gladness as we consider who you are. Show us uh, you in a way that we have not seen you before, and your goodness towards us, and your kindness towards us. Delight our souls with what you have made for us and prepare our hearts to receive you and your word and point us to great things and ultimately to Jesus Christ. All of this is about him and for him and it's to him that we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, when we kicked off the series on marriage, this sort of mini-series, uh, I told Shainu right from the onset that she had total veto power on anything that we were going to preach. So I told her that we were going to preach on marriage and and as I shared from our lives, I wanted to make sure that she knew I didn't want to say anything that would make her uncomfortable, share anything about us or our, our relationship or our marriage that would make her uncomfortable. And so I told her, you have veto on anything that I, I'm going to preach. And so I told her, I'm going to start by preaching on an overview of marriage and give the story of marriage and tell some of our story as well, both what went well, what hasn't gone well, going to counseling, all of that. She was cool. Then I told her I'm going to preach on marriage and men and marriage and women. And I said, I'm going to preach to the men about loving their wives as Christ loved the church and to the women about submitting to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And she was cool. And then I said, and I'm going to finish the series by preaching on marriage and sex. And Shiner shouted, Vito, right? <laughs> Vito. And she just ran around the house going, Vito, 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 Vito. 
And I said, okay, okay, hold on, what, what about it? And she said, the whole thing, just veto the whole thing. <laughs> Nothing about us and sex, I don't want you to say it's good, it's bad, you're content, you're discontent, none of it, just nothing and us, right? And in my head, I said, okay, okay, but in my head, I'm thinking, Shannon, you know, we have two kids, I think the church knows that, you know, you know, at least two times, you know, right? Um, right, I don't think they're gonna buy the virgin birth story anymore, that's been taken, so, so needless to say, Shainu is in nursery this Sunday. Um, <laughs> she even went theological on me yesterday and said, thank God for the sovereignty of God that Sobe assigned me to nursery this particular week. So that's sort of where we are. We're gonna finish our series on marriage today by speaking about what the scriptures have to say about marriage and sex. If this is your first time at Seven Mile Road, welcome. You picked a great Sunday, well done, right? Some of you are thinking, I could get used to this church thing if this is what we talk about, okay? Let me acknowledge that this may be a bit different for you. If you think this is awkward and weird for you, I'm the one who has to speak, right? So imagine for me. Let me say, I, I can imagine for many of you, this is probably the first time that you're ever going to hear a pastor or a preacher talk about sex. And if you've ever heard sex mentioned in the context of the Bible or the church, my guess would be you've likely heard it in a negative connotation. In fact, I'd wager that if you just talk to the average person in our city, if you went to someone on Bustleton Avenue or Roosevelt Boulevard and asked them what they thought the Bible had to say or the church or Christianity had to say about sex, my guess is they would respond with one word, don't, right? We would imagine that when the scriptures have anything, if they have anything to say about sex, that it would be prohibitions or commands or rules or warnings against the whole thing. And that's understandable. M many of us know what God is against far more than we, we know what he's for, right? And often the church has been characterized by what we're against than what, what we're for. And throughout church history, you know, even well-intentioned people have taught wrongly about sex and, and spread ideas about this whole thing and, and how to think biblically about it. So some, for example, used to teach that sex was a result of sin in the world. That's because Adam and Eve ate that fruit that we even have sex, otherwise this world would not have it. It's a result of the fall. Others have taught it's not sin in and of itself, but at least Christians should be encouraged to abstain and that that would be a form of piety and godliness. And so Christian couples throughout church history were often encouraged to abstain from sexual relations. For example, the Roman Catholic Church used to encourage its members to abstain from sex, husbands and wives, on certain days of the week. So for example, on Thursdays, in memory of Christ's arrest. On Fridays, in memory of his death. On Saturdays, in honor of the Virgin Mary. On Sundays, in honor of the resurrection. And on Mondays, in honor of all those who are departed. You know what that means? That Tuesday and Wednesday were the best days of the week, right? Every guy was like, it's the weekend, but Tuesday's coming. Right? And so this idea had sort of spread that this was, at best, maybe what the Bible says about sex is that it's sort of a necessary evil. Right? You need it for the sake of procreation, but that's all it is. And couples should engage in this for the sake of having children. Now here's what I want you to hear. The Bible's teaching about sex is none of those things. It's not any of those things. For example, did you know that the Bible has an entire book in it an entire book of the Bible devoted solely to the celebration of love and romance and intimacy and sex. 
a whole book of the Bible called Song of Solomon, devoted purely to the passion between a husband and his bride. A pastor named C.J. Mahaney said about the book of Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, he said, the Song of Songs is nothing less than an explicit and unblushing celebration of sex within marriage. An entire book of the Bible devoted to the promotion of sexual intimacy within the covenant of marriage. The Song of Solomon shines brightly, showing us the way to the best sex we can possibly experience. I want you to think about that for a second. God didn't give you a verse or even a chapter or even a section, but an entire book of the Bible devoted to the passion and love and love making of a husband and a wife. If you read through the chapters of Song of Songs, what you find is sort of this poetry between the bride and the groom, and it's basically an invitation into their bedroom. And you're called by the book to take notes and study what God thinks about sex and how you are to think about it as well. If you look at the book of Song of Solomon, and I want to read you just a few verses from it. If you look at it, I want to say this too. As great as children are, and we prize them and love them. We have almost twice as many kids as adults here. We have a lot of kids. But I want you to know, as great as children are, children are not mentioned once in the book of Song of Songs. And so even this intimacy and physical union between a husband and wife in this book has no thought even of pregnancy or conceiving or children. But rather, it's this unashamed display of passionate love and lovemaking between a husband and a wife. One commentator said that this book is so erotic and sensual in nature that Jewish boys were not allowed to read this book until they hit a certain age. And, and so let me read you a few verses from Song of Songs. And I want you to remember, like everything else in Scripture, we believe this to be the inspired, inerrant, without error word from God for us. And this is God's word to us. Song of Songs 1 verse 2. You don't have to turn there. Hear, hear how the book begins. The bride begins in this book, and she starts the book by saying, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. That's how the book starts. And from the first word, you get the tone and nature of this book, right? It's not like Genesis 1, in the beginning was God, and he created the heavens and the earth. It's not John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Song of Solomon starts with, Let him kiss me over and over and over again, for his love is better than wine. I want you to remember even this book is written to a Jewish audience. So you're talking more conservative than the deepest part of the Bible Belt. This is a very conservative place. And yet as you read Song of Solomon, you're going to find that the wife, who in that culture would have been quiet and subdued and in the kitchen, that the wife is the one who is the most vocal and dominant voice throughout the book. If you read Song of Songs, she is free and fun and vocal. She initiates, she's inviting, she freely expresses her desire for her husband. And so she begins the book by saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for his love is better than wine. So he, she is inviting him to smother her with kisses and then likens his love to wine. One commentator says, she's saying, it's, it's, I'm more buzzed than with wine when he kisses me. He responds in 4 verse 11, again, you can just hear it, by kissing of his own. And he says to her, your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. 
right? So he responds with kissing, deep, long, passionate kissing. He says, when I kiss, I find milk and honey under her tongue. What is that? In the, in the Old Covenant, milk and honey was these symbols of good and pleasure and satisfaction. The promised land that Israel was waiting for was described as the land of milk and honey. And he's saying, when I kiss her, I find the promised land under her tongue. Now, I'll let you think through all that that means, but at least this much is true, that the French did not invent this kind of kissing, right? You want passion, you try Hebrew kissing, okay? By the way, these are humorous verses, so please do not stare at me blankly, right? <laughs> so so this, is, this is God's inerrant, inspired word. In chapter 1, verse 9, he starts speaking. Now the groom is going to speak back to his bride, and he says to her, Chapter 1, verse 9, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. What's a mare? It's a female horse. So husbands, for your safety, do not try that at home. Don't go home and go, baby, you are a horse, right? It will not go well for you. It will not work as it did for him. He was rich, okay? So he says, he says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. What's he saying? In chapter 1, in verses 5 through 6, she has spoken, and she's basically let him know some insecurities she feels about herself. She literally says, don't look at me, for I'm dark yet lovely. I've been working out in the sun. I'm not dainty and delicate. I've been working in the fields, and I'm dark yet lovely. And she, she's expressing to him these insecurities she feels about her physical appearance. So he responds by saying, you are the most beautiful among all women. And then he says, I compare you like a mare in Pharaoh's chariots. Now, he, here's what he's saying. In Pharaoh's chariots, in Pharaoh's cavalry, there were no female horses. It was only stallions. And the reason is, if you put into that group of stallions one mare, it would have been pandemonium. If you tied a stallion with a mare, that would have been utter chaos. The, the energy and frenzy of that would have made the horse go wild. And he's saying, you think you're not beautiful, but when I see you, I go wild. This is, this is God's word. I could keep reading you more sections. Let me read you one more in Song of Solomon 7. If you read through the, the chapters, it's sort of this unfolding love story between the two. They're engaged at one point. They're looking ahead to their wedding and their wedding night at one point. They get married at one point. And in chapter 7, the, the groom sort of surveys his bride. And so he, he begins to look at her and describe her. Well, let me just let you hear it. So here's, here's what he says, 7 verse 1. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Again, a preacher said, husbands, don't say your wife's belly is a heap of anything, okay? Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools and heshbon, and so on he goes. And basically what he's doing is he's, he's surveying his bride, and he starts at her feet, and he works his way up, paying attention to every detail along the way. He considers her whole stature, and then he finishes off in verse 7. And I laughed all week hearing this verse, okay? He says this, Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Okay? I laughed all week. Did you just hear? You cannot keep a straight face. 
Your stature is like a palm tree. I'm, I'm going to watch my hands even, right? <laughs> your stature is like a palm tree. Your clusters, the, the, your breasts are its clusters. And I say, I will climb the tree, okay? This stuff will make you blush. In fact, I am blushing right now. It's just, I'm so dark and lovely that you can't see it, right? Here's what I want you to hear. The Bible is very uncomfortable to a promiscuous culture. The Bible is also very uncomfortable to a prudish culture, because the Bible is neither. It's neither promiscuous nor prudish. The Bible comes to both cultures and says, God has a vision for this whole thing that is different from you both. So here's, here's what I want to say. What are we to think? How are we to think about sex? Okay? In some ways, as I was thinking about this week, I, I thought th this could be a series all its own. Right? Where do you start? Do you start in his design? Do you start how sin has ruined this, as many of us know? Do you, see, do you start with how Jesus has redeemed it? So in some ways, I just want to kick off a conversation that over a lifetime of being together, we'll get to flesh out as we hear more and more of God's word. Today, I want to say just two things about it that I hope are helpful and practical to you. Here it is. Sex is good and sex is deep. Okay, sex is good and sex is deep, or sex is a symbol, or it's profound. These two things that I hope, just as we begin to start this conversation as a church, will be helpful to you, whether you are single or married. Here's the first one. Sex is good. It's a gift from God. It's a good gift from God. Maybe some of you wonder, you think sex is good, but you're not sure if God agrees. And, and, and what does God think about this whole thing anyway? In Song of Solomon, as these two are intimate in every way, and unashamed and, and with one another, you're sort of given a, a glimpse into God's heart because some of the onlookers respond to their love. And in chapter 5, verse 1, here's what they say. They say to these two lovers, he, they say, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And in it, that sort of captures God's heart as he looks on this couple. What he says to this couple is, eat, drink, and be drunk with love. What you have is a God who is not just tolerant of them, but is actually for them and for their joy and for their delight. He is for them in every way. He's for their passion. He's for their intimacy. He's for their joy. He's for their excitement. He's for all of it. I mean, when you think about sex, you, you probably don't think that God, for you husbands and wives, is more for your sex life than anyone else and is desiring for you to have a great and fulfilling and satisfying and joyful and full union with your husband or your wife, that God is for you. If you stop to think about it, right, if you just let your mind think about it and go, why did God make this? Why did he make this? He could have made anything, right? Why did he make the process of making babies this way? It, it could have been, there, were, there was no script he had to follow. It could have been, a man shall sneeze on his wife and she shall conceive and they will become one flesh. Why did he make this process so enjoyable and satisfying and desiring and full of such ecstasy and, and, and happiness? Why did he make that? Now, there's many reasons tucked into the mind of God, but I'll give you just one. It's because he's good. He's good, and he's for you, and he's for your joy, and he's for your delight. Remember, he is the creator. He's the one who thought this up. He's the one who made it. He didn't have a mound of something that he had to work with and try to make the best he could. 
He wasn't working on a canvas. There was no canvas. He made everything that has been made out of nothing. And so joy and pleasure and delight and satisfaction, these were God's ideas. Sometimes we're in the world so much that we begin to think that pleasure belongs to the devil. I want you to hear the scriptures say the devil is a pervert. He's never had an original idea, not one. Everything he's ever done is borrowed something God did and twisted and perverted in some way. He's never had a single creative idea. God is the one who designed joy and delight and pleasure and gladness and satisfaction. He's the author and inventor of all things. So why did, again, I want to ask, why did he make sex for a husband and wife? Again, I don't know all the reasons, but I'll tell you, it's the same reason that not everything tastes like Brussels sprouts. What do I mean by that? Why did he make chocolate and steak and cherries? Why, why did he make fruit, and not just one, but bananas and kiwis and strawberries and, and mangoes and pineapples and, and all of these? Why, if we just needed fuel to survive, food, why doesn't everything just taste like gruel? Why did he make all these flavors and kinds and, and different varieties? It's because he's good. He is for you. You see, this gets at more than just sex. This gets at how do you think about God? Do you think of a God who is simply tolerant of you? Or a God who is actually for you? Who delights in you? Who is glad for you? There's a difference between a God who can put up with you and a God who is passionately with all his creative genius for you and delights in you and, and rejoices in you. 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, hear this. It says, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Everything, that includes sex. Everything God made is good. And so here's the point. The point is when you eat and, and enjoy and drink and enjoy and have union and enjoy, these things are supposed to result in this thanksgiving that swells up in your heart. Your soul is supposed to get full, right? When you, when you have a day off, when you enjoy music, when you taste good food, when you drink good drink, it's supposed to result in your heart getting full, your soul swelling to the point that you begin to worship and go, you are so good to have thought this up, to not just tolerate that I enjoy these things, but to delight in my joy. It's supposed to roll up into thanksgiving and worship and praise to God. And when we receive God's good gifts well, God is glorified by that. Imagine that thought. God not only tolerates sex between a husband and wife, God is glorified by it. That when we receive his good gifts well, he receives glory. He is in every corner of the earth, including your bedroom, so that as you receive his good gifts well, he receives great glory. It's a good gift. Now there's more that we could say. Here's just one more part of that I want to say. You that are older, Imagine, just imagine, if your first understandings about sex were shaped by that worldview. 
Imagine if your first understandings and, and interactions with sex and sexuality were shaped by that glory of God and the goodness of God and that worldview. Imagine your first interaction with sex wasn't with, informed to you by some pimple-faced teenager in the locker room or on the playground. Imagine instead someone sat you down and began to tell you that these things that were going to rage in your body and these desires were put there by God and were from God and were good and someone pointed your shoulders and said, put your head down and get ready because one day there will be one person in which you enjoy all that God made for the rest of your life. How different would my life, your life, your story be if someone had cast for you a vision of the goodness of God and the glory of God in all that God made for his glory, including your sexuality? Imagine your story wasn't marked with your first interactions with this being in secrecy or hiding or shame or filth or dirtiness or darkness. But imagine your first vision of this was as bright as the sun because God is good and glorious and loves his children and there's a purpose and design and thought to all these things. I want to say this to you parents who have children, young children. I am pleading you by God's word. You commit yourself to being the first voice in the lives of the sons and daughters at Seven Mile Road about sex. Do not let it be that the pimple-faced kid on the playground is the one who shapes their worldview. You be the one who begins to point them to the goodness and glory of God and show them this horizon so that they, and they will sin, they will sin just like you've sinned and I've sinned, but they can have a much better start than many of you and I did if we can cast for them the goodness of God. There's more we could say. Let me say a second thing. Sex is good, but it's also deep, or it's also a symbol. It's also a symbol. Our culture would have you believe every message that you hear from TV and on the movies and in the world and in our city. Our culture would have you believe that sex is purely physical. That's it. It's this base sort of animal instinct within us. It's just wired into us as mammals. And so that's all it is. It's no different than your appetite for food or drink. And so sex is nothing more than a physical reality as well. Our culture's advice would be, you owe it to yourself to eat and drink. And so likewise, you owe sex to yourself. To deny that to yourself would be to, as, as unthinkable as denying food and drink. Our culture would say, so, so our advice would be have as much sex whenever, wherever, however possible, there are no rules, it's just an animal appetite. Two recent Hollywood movies, I didn't see, but I read this, the plot lines for both. Both of their, their plots was basically, they had this couple that was gonna try and hook up without any strings attached. And that was the entire plot of the movie, is trying to get this couple to be sexually active together, but they make this agreement beforehand there's going to be no dating, no falling in love, no marriage. This is going nowhere. We're just coming together to meet our animal needs, and then we go apart. And yet, even in a Hollywood movie, the entire plot is about how these two cannot help but feel more as they engage in sexual unity. The entire movie is based on this plot line that says everything in them knows that they're connecting more than bodies. And they have to sort of try and numb this reality over and over again to try and engage in sex in mindless and thoughtless ways. 
Because here's the thing, no matter how much you deny it, no matter how much you try and play it down or make it just animal instinct, all of us know this thing has wired within it this innate union that connects not just two bodies, but two souls. Sex is wired that way to be a union of not just two bodies, but of two souls. It's more than animal instinct, right? One preacher, as I was researching that, and researching this week has been plenty of fun, so I'm listening to all these sermons, and one preacher was saying that, did you know that out of all the mammals, we're the only one whose primary position for union is face-to-face? -face? We're the only ones, out of all the animals made, the only one whose primary position for intercourse is face-to-face. -face. Now, do me a favor and don't Google that. Just take my word for that, okay? But, but why? In the Hebrew language, in the original language, the word for sex itself had this meaning of both intermingling of bodies and of souls. There's no vision for sex in the scriptures that does not have both union of body and of soul. It's not just two bodies. It's two peoples and personalities and thoughts and emotions and directions and will and lives that are being united. Sex is about more than just biology or chemistry or physical. It's deeper. It's the mixing of two souls. Here's what I want to say about this. Here's what sex is doing. Sex is an outward, physical, tangible symbol of an inward, invisible, spiritual reality. Sex is an outward, physical, tangible symbol of an inward, invisible, spiritual reality. When you get married and you stood at the altar, you husbands and wives, what you were saying to one another with your vows and with your lips is, I am now wholly, solely, completely, permanently, in every way, till death do us part, yours. That's what you do in marriage. You stand at an altar and with your lips, look to one another and you say, in every way, we're now one. And the Bible says that that oneness is called one flesh. And that, that one flesh promise in the scriptures is called a covenant. And any time you have a promise of that magnitude, a covenant of that nature in the scriptures, there's always going to be a sign that accompanies that covenant. That's the way the Bible works. So, for example, when God makes this huge promise with Abraham, he seals that covenant with a sign, and he gives him the, the sign of circumcision. When God makes a promise with a man named Noah that he's not going to destroy the world with a flood anymore, that promise has a sign. It's the rainbow. When Jesus makes a covenant, a promise with the church, he gives to the church signs, baptism and communion. And these symbols were to point to these incredible truths. So likewise, this incredible, enormous promise called marriage has a sign. And that sign is sex. That's what sex is. So that on your wedding night, you were sealing with your bodies what you had already promised with your lips that morning. That's what sex does every time. Every time a person has sex, it is this promise with your body that I am wholly, fully, completely, forever, till death do us part, yours. Permanent in every way. Now, two practical words to singles and marrieds about that. Singles. This is why the scriptures call you to abstain from sex before and outside of marriage. It's not because the Bible is just full of rules that's trying to spoil your fun. The Bible is saying, 
do not say with your bodies something you have not yet said with the rest of your life. Don't lie. That's what the scriptures are saying. Don't say with your body to this person, I am wholly, completely, permanently, forever, exclusively till death do us part yours with your body if you have not said that in every other way, if you have not said that legally and emotionally and financially and spiritually and socially, if every way you have not yet committed to this person in the covenant of marriage, don't lie with your body. Don't say with your body something you have not said with the rest of your lives. Right? It's, it's sort of the same thing we do when we come to communion. Every week when we're about to come to communion, I say, if you know Jesus is Lord, come, take, receive. Give yourself to Christ and take this. And then I say, if you don't know Jesus as Lord, then don't come take the bread and the cup because to take these symbols without it meaning anything in your life would be judgment rather than blessing. Right? If you take this bread, which is the body of Christ broken for me, and you receive that, but you haven't received Jesus, or you take this cup, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins, but you have not yet believed in Jesus or been forgiven of your sins, then we warn to take these symbols in ways that mean nothing to you would be judgment rather than blessing. It's like if you found my wedding ring on the floor and you're single and you put this on the fourth finger of your left hand, no one would think that was cute. No one would think that was even normal. Everyone would say, there's something wrong with that. You can't just slip a wedding ring over your finger because if this doesn't point to something in your life, that's, that's outside of how the whole thing has been designed. That doesn't make any sense to carry the symbol when it points to no reality yet in your life. So likewise, the scriptures say, we want you, even with your body, telling the truth about the rest of your life. This is God's call to you, even in singleness. Not to constrain you, but to make sure that when you say this with your bodies, you tell the truth. Married folk, you have the opposite end of this. When I was in premarital counseling or somewhere before I got married, I remember someone telling me, the great trick of the devil is to try and get you to have as much sex as possible before marriage and as little sex as possible after marriage. When I was single, that made no sense, right? Because if, if you're a Christian, you're single, you're just waiting to get that day. And then how do you imagine life from then on? You men, you went into marriage thinking what? Five, six, seven times a week, right? Like I'm the only one. I know, right? <laughs> you thought life was going to be this unending circle of food and sex and sports center and food and sex and sports center. And it was just going to be a cycle like that, right? Wives, I don't know what your thoughts were. Maybe you thought it was going to be candlelight and romance and dancing and dinner every night and deep conversations till the morning. How is all of that going, right? <laughs> then you get married and life happens and bills happen and jobs happen and house happens. And then interruptions happen and schedules happen and children happen, right? Children were brought into the world through sex and it seems like their only goal is to make sure it never happens again, right? <laughs> And then fights come, and hurts come, and misunderstandings come, and all of this comes together, and it seems like the trick of the enemy is to get you to have as much sex as possible before marriage, and as little of it as possible afterwards. And the scripture's call to you married folks is don't. Don't let romance and sex be the casualty of life in your marriage. But God's call to you is 
tell the truth with your bodies about what's true with your life. So there's many applications that I won't say. So you, I'll say this, you wives, you, you ought to talk with your husbands. Perhaps you ought to confess and say, I have not loved you well in this place, and I am sorry. You husbands ought to talk with your wives, and perhaps you ought to confess to them and say, I am sorry that this whole world has felt like a burden and pressure and joy and, and, and duty rather than delight and joy. The Lord knows and the Holy Spirit is able to show you what conversations need to happen, but I'd imagine conversations need to happen. Sex is this profound symbol of this union of souls. But at a deeper level, I'll say one more thing. Sex points to a union even greater than your union with your spouse. Because at the most ultimate level, sex is this pointer to our union with God. Now there's a mystery to that. There's no body. God is not a body. He's, not a, he, he's a spirit. He has no length or dimension or size. He's outside of our thinking. And yet somehow sex mysteriously points us to union with God. Let me read you one verse from Ephesians 5. We heard this two weeks ago when we preached on it. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's union. They shall become one flesh. 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, here's what Paul said. The two shall become one flesh, and he says about this union, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. And so what that means is, as intimate and incredible as the union between a husband and wife is, it ultimately, ultimately points to union with God. The ecstasy of knowing and being known, of being one in every way, being one in heart and body and mind and soul, being one with no boundaries between, that kind of union is the kind of union you enjoy with God. And that's what sex is pointing to, to the idea that you are now one with God. You are one, his, you're his body. Somehow in every way, you are one. And so as good and great as sex is, as much as a gift as it is to us, sex is ultimately just a shadow because it's pointing to something greater. That's why there's going to come a day when there will be no more sex. Our culture hears that. Some of you hear that. That sounds like a nightmare, not a dream, right? But hear me. There's going to be no more need for it. You know why? I've said this example before that another preacher said, if, if you're a kid in a supermarket and you lose sight of mom for a moment and, and you're looking through the aisles and then all of a sudden you see the shadow of what looks like mom turn the corner, you begin to get happy. But that pales in comparison to when mom actually steps around the corner and you see mom. And in that moment, no one goes, give me the shadow back. Because what you go is the reality is much better than the shadow. The shadow was just there to point me to the coming reality. One day there will be no more need for sex because one day our hearts will finally be full and we will finally enjoy pleasure and satisfaction and joy like never before and that's when Jesus steps around the corner and finally we get to be with him and he gets to be with us and we're one. And in that day, there will be no more longing and no more craving for everything you desire you will have in him. That's what sex is pointing us to. 
Sex, even sex, is ultimately about Jesus Christ. Let me read you one verse. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. And that includes, that all things include sex. It's from him and through him and to him that all of this is about. Ultimately, the best sex you will ever have is mindful of these glorious realities. You have to hear that. I know our culture tells us. You watch enough TV, you'll know. Every person that's having the best sex on TV is what? Single, promiscuous, or in some hot, adulterous affair outside of marriage. And always the married couple is having the boring, bland sex. And the scriptures are saying, stop drinking the culture's Kool-Aid. Because God made this thing, and he is good, and he's for your good. And it's supposed to swell your heart with thanksgiving to the point that you say, how great you are. And it's pointing to this deep union and this longing in your heart that will ultimately be met by Jesus himself. It's these great realities that all of this is about. Last thing, and then I'll close. As good as all of this is, here's the reality for us. When I was thinking about it this week, I, I, the only analogy I could come with is, is like fireworks, right? Fireworks, if handled properly, it explodes in this flash of raging, brilliant beauty. It's satisfying, it's exhilarating, it's exciting, it lights up the night sky, it brings joy, delight, exciting, thrilling. That same thing, however, has the potential to blow up in your face and shred you apart and leave damage and devastation that will last a lifetime. Right? That's what sex is like. This good thing, but in its power, can either be this brilliant, glorious thing or can destroy and devastate. And at some Maron, each of you, I, can tell you that this good thing taken by me has been messed up in a million different ways. And each of us know what it's like to have this thing blow up in our face. Each of us know at Seven Mile Road, we're a people who have sinned sexually and been sinned against sexually. And even among you sitting in these pews, some of you know that this thing, because of its power, because of its nature, has this ability to stain and wound you like no other sin can. I can testify sexual sin has an ability to stain you in a way that's different than every other kind of sin. And some of you know of the devastation of it in your life. And here's what I want to end by saying. Jesus came for you too. He did. He came for sinners, even of the sexual kind. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy and true and worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. Maybe each of us could go, me too, I'm the worst. But here's the good news. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, even sexual sinners. If you've seen YouTube, perhaps you've seen this sermon clip by this pastor named Matt Chandler. I'll tell you this last story and then I'll, I'll stop. He gives this story about being at a, a seminar where a preacher was standing and talking about sex. 
And he said, this preacher took a rose and he smelled the rose and he looked at it and he threw it into the crowd and he said he wanted everyone to touch the rose and feel the rose and get a good look at the rose. And so there's a thousand people there and it's being passed around. And he said, as he's teaching, he taught perhaps one of the worst sermons on sex ever. Just total fear, total anger, total don't, nothing of what the scriptures say fully. And he said his big crescendo was to take this rose back. And he called back for the rose and he said, who had the rose? And someone brought up the rose and he said he held it and, and you looked and this rose was just damaged and dangled and manhandled. A thousand people had touched it. And he lifted up the rose, now all messed up, and, and his big crescendo, he said, was to say, now who wants this rose? And in the story, Matt Chandler says, it took everything in him not to get up, stand up, and scream, Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants the rose. That's the gospel. The gospel is, no matter how you have messed up your life, Jesus wants you. God took him who had no sin and made him sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because you've been washed, you've been sanctified. These are all the words of scripture. Jesus wants you, no matter where you've been, the Lord wants you and can redeem you even this day. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we pray that you would speak good news to us today. We pray that you would help us to see that you are a good God, that you are not merely tolerant of us, but that you are passionately for us. We know that you're for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. What have you held back from us? Even the priceless gift of your Son you've given. How much then these lesser things that remind us of your goodness for us. Pray that you would fill every person here with great joy so that when they eat and when they drink, whatever they do would be done for the glory of God. I pray for singles here today. I pray that you would remind them that their every sin has been forgiven. They need not walk in the ways of the world anymore. They now belong to Jesus. They have no obligation to the flesh, to the world, or to the devil. They've been purchased by faith through Christ. So let the singles at Seven Mile Road walk in holiness and purity. Let them tell the truth about who you are with their lips, with their lives, with their bodies. I pray for every struggling saint that you would give them power and strength even today and a vision for purity and freedom in the Lord. We pray for married folks at Seven Mile Road. We pray that you would remind them that their every sin has been forgiven. We need grace and thankfully we have much of it in you. There is a never-ending supply. There's mercy every morning and steadfast, unending love never going to quit, never going to end love from you. Remind us that all our sins have been cleansed away and help us now to come to you. I pray that you would let repentance happen from wives to husbands and husbands to wives. Confession, even before we come to the table, that we would confess. <coughs> we pray that you would allow there to be good physical 
loving relationships between husbands and wives that are pure and holy and satisfying and joyful at Sabmarun in such a way that it would be witness to a watching world that we would be faithful to one another as Jesus has been faithful to us. We ask also, even this morning, for our children, that they would grow up from our lips with a, with a vision <coughs> that is grand and glorious and good, and that you would preserve them from much sin, and that they would be better followers of Jesus than even their parents, than even we were. Do more than we knew to ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.